the podcast of Odessa First Assembly. I'm so glad that you're joining us for the Seven Churches series. This series is about the seven churches in the book of Revelation. If you'd like more information about our church, you can find us at odessafirst.com or on any social media platform. I pray that you are strengthened and encouraged by today's message. churches today is Sardis and you know it's really uh, you know going through these churches sometimes get a little bit heavy and uh, but the side note really quick I think Wednesday night I'm just so grateful for all that showed up Wednesday night we had a, a really a great time and hopefully you learned a little bit just about the about the Bible and um, just as a whole and why we have faith in God's Word and why we believe it's God's Word and so we're gonna continue doing that over the next uh, five more Wednesdays, and so I invite you to be here as we can. I don't know that we can every week, but as we can, we'll have a little bit of worship and open up, and, and we're going to talk about different things. Derek will be teaching here um, shortly on the resurrection, along with other things we'll be just talking about. It's called apologetics, of just giving that defense of the gospel and what we believe. But we want to pick up in Revelation chapter 3, and again, this is, this is a little bit of a uh, of a heavy message because the that's the kind of the tone of the text and so but I think we're gonna open up some things and you see some things and the Lord's gonna speak to you but in Revelations chapter 3 beginning in, in verse 1 it says this and to the angel of the church of Sardis right I'm trying to read this and start my time at the same time um, and the, to the angel of the church and Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You know, and I want to pause right there just for a moment, just, just a little bit of interjection. And there's something personal that happened to me. One time I was, uh, I was praying. I was actually part of a church on the staff of the church. I felt like the church could have had a whole lot more life and and uh, I was kind of using this as an excuse to pray what I was praying. But I was like, God, wake up this dead church. And the Lord really spoke to me, the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit said to me, um, don't call dead where I've brought life. And really gave me a rebuke. And I became, I became really cautious after that encounter with the Lord of, of any church of speaking life or death over them. Listen to me. I know there's all kinds of churches out there, and we're part of one of those all kinds of churches. And there's churches that worship like we do. There's churches that worship that don't worship like we do. There's churches that worship more exuberantly than we do, and some less. And listen, the what the scripture says about worship is that we worship in spirit and in truth. So I'm, I'm preaching really good right now. Scripture says that we worship in spirit and truth. Be careful of the physical attributes that of you of, of saying whether a church is dead or alive. And what is our goal, what we want, what we're hungry for is the Spirit of God to have reigning control of what happens here. And I, I think as should any church, but I just, I'm just I'm saying that there. But however, if Jesus says it, that's a different thing, isn't it? He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. 
For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at the hour I will come against you. I mean, that's another thing you don't want. I mean, you, you don't want Jesus against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear, and hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we're going to break this down just a little bit different. What I like about what I, what, what, uh, I, you know, when I say, take this with a grain of salt, what, when I'm looking, you're looking at this passage, this is one of the seven churches that Jesus really doesn't have a combination for. He, did, he didn't have an, a, he really doesn't have that much of a encouragement. You know, all the other churches, Jesus, there was something where Jesus said, you're doing this well. I like what you're doing here and you're growing in your faith and, and, you know, the different, you know, commendations like that. But there's really not one here for Sardis. And, and actually, we've been making correlations of things about the city, things about the culture that Jesus pulls from to really make an illustrative point about what he's trying to bring across. And Sardis is one of the most colorful when it comes to that. And it really doesn't make sense to us because we don't know that city's history. And we're going to learn, sometimes when I've been doing this, I've been laying some groundwork first and then kind of jumping in on top, but we're kind of going to meld it together this morning. And so we're going to begin in verse 1, and it talks about, again, as, as all of these letters are to the churches, that the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I mean, not to take a whole lot of time, but we got to understand that God is complete, Matter of fact, the Bible says that be holy as far as he is holy and be complete as far as he is complete. God is whole and Jesus is part of that wholeness and the Holy Spirit is part of it. We believe in the Trinity, but there is a wholeness in them. And the seven spirits of God and the, specifically is talking about that of the Holy Spirit. The sevenfold Spirit of God is another name for that of the Holy Spirit. And that's really critical as we look at this because it's going to be a little bit heavy this morning. But I want to remind you, the Bible tells us that the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, dwells in you, who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body. Listen, wherever you are in your walk with Jesus, I mean, we all sometimes have gone through that roller coaster, right? We go through those highs and, and man, we got the goosebumps and God's blessing and working. And I mean, it's awesome. But there's also times where it's a struggle. I mean, so, uh, maybe it's just me. Maybe all of you are super Christians, but I've gone through times in my life where it's like, am I even saved? I mean, I haven't even thought about, about myself. Here's what you need to know is that God can breathe life into anything. God can breathe life into you. He can breathe life into somebody spiritually dead. He can breathe life into somebody physically dead. That's what he does. He breathes life 
And so as we read this, it's going to be heavy. Listen to me. I'm just trying to prepare you. But know all through this, the reason why Jesus opens up and says, listen, I am the representation, the completeness of God, and we are working together with the Holy Spirit who I've given to you as a promise. Things may be dead, but there can still be life. The seven stars is is to the leaders, and I don't want to jump all deep into that. But here's, then he, I mean, man, just right away he lowers the boom. I know your works. And you know what? And we really need to hear the Holy Spirit say that to us. Listen, there may be not a whole lot of people that know the real you, but Jesus does. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive but you are dead. And the thought that came to me is this. You know, I, a, a, a few times I've said recently, you know, the problem with deception is that it's deceiving. Well, there is no deceit like self-deceit. When we don't have an accurate view of ourselves and where we stand spiritually, that's a dangerous place to be. You know, last week we ended with of submitting to God Right? I mean, given that submission and then resist, and then the devil, I mean, it's that complete submission to the Lord that says, God, here I am. There's nobody that knows me like you because you're the one that knit me. You're the one that made me. You're the one that knows my inmost being. And I, we may have a view of ourselves, but God sees the accurate view. Come on now. But there is a flip side of that I want to encourage you with. Yes, I mean, if we're, if we're living in a way that we think is, that nobody else knows about, and I mean, we're really, I mean, you know, well, the word is hypocrite, if we're living like a hypocrite, but I want to, you know, I, I, it's been a while since I've said this, I've, I've used this quote many times, it's my, it's my mom's wisdom, she said, if it wasn't for hypocrites, we wouldn't need church, come on now, that's, right? And something else she says, you know, people say, I don't want to go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites. And then my mom, I, I can tell you, I, I've heard her say this a hundred times over. I'd rather go to church hypocrites than hell with them. Oh, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? <laughs> but we really need an accurate view of ourselves spiritually. And the Holy Spirit wants us to see that. In all the churches of Revelation, Jesus recognizes either persecution or attack but as we just read through this passage did Jesus say anything about persecution or attack so the question is why in all the other churches in Revelation that Jesus points out yes you've been persecuted and we know that some of those cities I mean we talked about Pergamum remember Pergamum and the sword of justice and that emperor could just I mean just kill whoever you wanted to kill and that Christians could not buy and sell things unless they sacrificed to the emperor. I mean, some very unholy things. And Christians were being martyred, losing their life because they stood for faith. They were being attacked. I mean, he talks about the synagogue of Satan in one of the churches. And uh, I just, but here we read in Sardis, there's nowhere we read about persecution and attack. And I may have those pictures in the wrong place, Tony. So you may, but there's some pictures. Are we on the, am I in the right place? Or hopefully you're in the right place. I'll be in the wrong place. But I, so uh, in Sardis, it's really neat. They, there's a lot of it still standing. And I want to show you a picture of the synagogue there. This is a picture of the Jewish synagogue in Sardis, of what they've excavated. Now, 
it, is the, it, it was the largest synagogue, we're talking about Jewish, Hebrew, the largest synagogue outside of Palestine. It was roughly the size of a football field. And when they had excavated it, when they had, you know, were uncovering it and how they do all that kind of stuff, um, I want you to go to the next, I can't remember what the next picture is, Tony, would you move to it? Um, let's go to the next one. Right there, okay. So this is inside of that synagogue. And so this is where the Jewish people would come and worship God, right? And so, but here's the interesting thing. If you'll notice there, that eagle and that image right there that is a lion with something, you know, it's, it's corroded there. You can see the two lions kind of back to back on the other side. These are Roman pagan symbols and the Jewish synagogue in Sardis. And so when Jesus is saying, you have a name that you think you're alive, but you're really dead, they had become so much like the culture, they no longer held the distinctives of what it was to believe in God. And the Jewish people were headed this direction, and you know who else was headed that direction? The Christians were. The Christians met in, in groups of 30 and 40 in Sardis and, and home churches. But they were adopting the same cultural personality that they lived in. And not only that, but if you'll go back to that, was there three pictures? I can't remember. If you'll go backwards, go to the one where we were at. No, yeah, go back to that first one. I'm sorry. When you go back, you see the columns? You see all the columns? When they, when they got to looking at those columns, the, they had the, um, let me see the best way to describe this. The, the Jewish people had written their names that were a member of the, now we're not going to do that in here with Sharpies or nothing, okay? So we need ideas. So, but they, <laughs> in, in those columns was, J Jewish people had written their names, but they didn't write their names in Hebrew they wrote their names in Greek. Here's the significance of that. To the Jewish culture, names have a meaning. If you think back to the book of Daniel, is this, are you, are you guys with me? So if you go back to the book of Daniel, we read about Daniel, right? But we read about three other people. Does anybody remember about the three other people? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember that's not their Hebrew name. That was their Babylonian name. And the Babylonians renamed them according to their culture to get them to forget about their old culture. They wanted to give them the identity of the godless Babylonian culture and forget about the God culture that they came from. Do you see a connection? So here's the people, the Jewish people, writing their name in Greek changing even their identity to look more like the world than they were living in than being separate from the God that they were supposed to be worshiping. And so there's, and, and not only that, in the marketplace, when they opened up the marketplace in Sardis, they found, so you, remember, everywhere else, Christians were being persecuted because of their faith. Because of their faith. So when you look at that culture in the first century, here's what's happening. Christians for a little while were given a pass 
because the Romans saw Christianity as a sect of Judaism, of the Jewish way to worship. And so in the Romans' eyes, they kind of saw them the same. But then a man came into power called Nero. Anybody remember Nero at all? Remember Nero in, in your history books? And so when Nero, Nero am I saying it wrong? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so Nero, with him, he's the one that realized, wait a minute, there's something different about these Christians, and we better get a handle on it. And so that's when the intense persecution towards Christians came in. Are you following me? And so all the other churches we've read about, what, are we, what's, what is a defining factor? Even though they may have been a small group and a st struggling group and a persecutor, I mean, they're losing their faith. They can't buy and sell. They can't trade. They can't have shops in the marketplace. But in Sardis, you know what they found? They found storefronts, for lack of a better word. And they found two, matter of fact, side by side. One had a Jewish symbol and one had a cross. The symbol of Christianity but yet they could buy and sell and trade how could they do that in that Roman culture if they were not giving in to the Roman culture is that a oh me or is anybody making an application here Christians being attacked everywhere except here in 2nd Timothy chapter 3 you may be familiar with this passage 2nd Timothy chapter 3 but understand this, that in the last days there's going to be times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I mean, that's a pretty specific, distinct description of what humanity is going to be like in the last days. Does anybody think that describes the culture we live in? I think that it does. So if that's the culture of our society, we the church should look just like that. I'm, I'm hoping a few more people is about to say no. <laughs> Absolutely not. And then like here's, I mean, here's the, the, the biggie, right, that more of us are familiar with, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, having a name that you're alive but you're dead. We lose our power when we conform to the culture of the world. There is no other way to say that. We lose our, what was happening was, see, Jesus made a very exclusive statement. There is no way to the Father, but how? But through Jesus. And Sardis lost that exclusive nature of that command of Jesus. There is no other way to eternal life. There is no other way to the Father except through Jesus. And so the key is this, there is power in godliness. I am, a, of course, I'm a firm believer there is power when we are filled, baptized, and that of the Holy Spirit. If you are not baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And yes, there are other gifts than that of tongues. There's the, 
you know, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, there's miracles, there's faith, there's discernment, mission tugs, interpretation. But listen, and, I, and, and, and yes, I, I get the flip side. I know that there are people that speak in tongues and yet have no other evidence of their infilling of the Holy Spirit. That's also a dangerous place to be, by the way. But listen to me. If you feel like that you are living a powerless life, if you feel like the enemy is getting a leg up on you no matter what you try to do, I'm going to make a challenge to you. Live godly. Live godly. I know that's not popular in our culture. I know that's pop, not popular in our American go- church culture so many times. But if you want a life change, then live out that life change. Godliness is devotion and action. I, listen to me. I don't think, I, this may be in my notes later on, I think, and there may be a blank. I don't know. But listen to me. I don't think godliness is just being without evil. I don't think godliness, I mean, sometimes I think we hear that word godliness like, oh, I've got to be perfect. No, you've got to be godly. You can't be perfect, but we can be godly. The Holy Spirit empowers you to do that. 1 Peter 1.13, it's a powerful passage. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be conformed by the way you used to live life, but live out how God's changed your life. You can do it. I know enemy in our society that we live in wants to tell you that you can live a watered-down, lukewarm life, which we'll talk about. Yeah, we haven't talked about that church yet. But listen, you can live godly. I don't care what the enemy tells you. You can do it. Verse 15, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Listen, holiness in your life, the way it works is being submitted to him, devoted to him. He is the vine. We are the branches. It's John 15. If we remain in him, it's that remaining in him where we find that godliness. It's that remaining in him that we find that holiness. But apart from him, what? We can do nothing. We can do nothing. So godliness is not just the absence of you. So what, uh, just really quick, what's some ways that we live godly in godliness? And, uh, and then if, you're, if you got the notebook notes are there, they're on. Hopefully the U version is live now. It wasn't last week. But anyway, all these are listed there. Walk in good works, Ephesians 2.10. Walk in, you, Ephesians 2.10 very quickly says that we are God's masterpiece. And that he has created in advance for works for us to accomplish. Listen, it is following to work in devotion to the Lord is following God's will for your life. Walk in good works. The Bible says, and also, you know what? The Bible says to, to know to do good and not do it is sin. Walk in good works. Walk properly. Walk properly. I want to read Romans 13, 13 in the New Living. I don't think I have it on the screen, but Romans 13, 13 
The New, Levin, New Living Translation. ESV says walk properly, but listen to the NLT. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity or immoral living or quarreling or, and, and, and jealousy. But we must live in a way, all of those around us, that we are walking. Listen to me. I, I know we got to take this a grain of salt. But what I have found is I think lost people are, and people that are really anti-church and anti-God and anti-Christian, sometimes it seems like those guys know how we're supposed to walk with the Lord better than we do. <laughs> and I, I, I know it's a gotcha moment for them, right? Well, you don't even live up to how you believe. But listen, but we are empowered to live it right. And listen, I, I, and I don't want to, I know that some of us, if you, maybe it, it, you're in the house this morning, I'm not talking about going back to the place of just the, the stringent traditional rules that were not based in the Bible. I'm not interested in that. Matter of fact, scripture says that it has to be the circumcision of the heart. But what I am telling you is that you may have bought the lie from the enemy and culture that you can't do it, and I'm here to tell you that you can. Will you always do it perfect? No, you won't. But you can. But you can. Um, walk as children of light. Walk worthy of the Lord. That's, man, that's a, that's, a, that's a command, isn't it, from Paul? Colossians 1.10, as so walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. Walk worthy of your calling. Listen to me. One of the, I, I see it happen so often. People call to a specific area of ministry, but it never fulfills for them because they're not walking worthy of the calling. Walk as Jesus walked. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk the same way. This is, this is what the Bible, this is not Pastor Todd. This is not Strong's Concordance. This is not Matthew Henry or some other dude that lived a long time ago. John, 1, John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which Jesus walked. But that's also in compassion. Love, acceptance. Here's the reality of it all. I don't think I say this enough. Dead men don't have rights. Revelations 2 and... Two, man, that... Okay. Revelations chapter 2, that chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. It says, wake up. Everybody say, wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it, repent. If you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you'll not know the, what hour I'll come against you. I, I, I got to sum this up really quick, but this is really cool. So when Jesus said this, I'm going to tell you, the Christians that heard this letter, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Now, just reading it for what it says, we can make a lot of guesses and, and uh, try to make some connections, but this has a very specific meaning. Remember what I've told you, right? If you really want to apply scripture to your life, you've got to understand sometimes the groundwork, what's happening in the verse, in the scripture. But, so here's what's happening. In 546 BC, Cyrus from Babylon, from Babylon Cyrus II, Sardis had never been conquered before. 
And I, I, didn't have, I don't have time to go into how the city was set up and a lower city and a higher city and, and, the, and the, I mean, the, the mountains that protected them and the walls. I mean, it's really awesome to dig into that stuff. But listen, so Cyrus wants to be the one, the first one to defeat Sardis. He's like, I, I mean, and we know, I mean, we're talking about Babylon. This, we're talking about, you know, I mean, this has a connection with Israel and Judah and all that kind of stuff. But listen, so Cyrus says, I'm going to take the city. And so he, they try, they can't do it. And so finally what he does, he just lays siege to the city. He, encirc- he, in- he gets his army and they circle around the city. And they're trying to, you know, trying to figure out what they're going to do. Everything they did, they didn't work. And then one night, there's a soldier from Sardis. And he's, at, it was a different name of a city then. I think Lydia maybe. Anyway, and so he's up there. He looks over the wall and his helmet falls and falls to the ground. And so the soldier from Cyrus's army, he, he sees it. I mean, they're, they're watching the wall, and he sees the kind, kind of, he sees the sky. He's a little bit like, the historians say he's like, look like a little ant, and he's, he's coming, he's, he's going down this, they can see him coming down this path all the way down, then disappears behind the wall, and they're watching, they're watching, and then a little trap door opens up at the bottom of the wall, and he walks out, grabs his helmet, shuts the trap door, goes back into the city. And so they run and tell Cyrus. They're like, Cyrus, there's a trap door. And so Cyrus sends his entire army on the opposite side of the city. And so everybody, go, except for his special forces. And so his whole army's on one side of the city. Are you guys catching this? This is really cool. I mean, you may not like history. I love it. So they're on the other side of the city. And so all the guards, all the army of Sardis go to the other side of the city to defend. And then the secret, the, the special forces break in through the trap door and take the city. But it didn't just happen once. It happened twice. Then Persia wants to take the kingdom. And so they come in, and so the Babylons have it. And so 300 years later, Persia wants to do it. But see, Cyrus and the Babylonians, they learned their lesson, and they, they knew not to do that. And so the Persians have laid seed to the city. And they're watching, and they see a bunch of buzzards up on one side of the city, and they would never fly away. And then they notice... The, the guards throwing dead bodies over the wall. But they weren't guarding si- the side of that wall because of the stench. And so they were on the other parts of the city. And so what did the Persians do? They just came, went up the scale the wall. They climbed the mountain, climbed the wall right there, come over the wall, defeat the city. And Jesus is saying to them, think about this now. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I found your works not complete in my sight. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it. Repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you'll not know the hour and I will come against you. And yes, Jesus is giving them a rebuke. But he's, make, he's telling them they know exactly what it meant. They knew that those kingdoms, when the city fell, they were not guarding what remained. Sometimes, sometimes the enemy, he's going to give you a false front to fight on. 
Sometimes the enemy is going to send you his best before God can send, send you his because the enemy knows blessings is coming towards your life. He wants to distract you. Why? So he can find a way to get in the wall. I got I to gotta hurry. We got to... Is this okay? Are you with me? Okay. I'm going to skip some stuff. I'm sorry. So... Christ promises a threefold reward for those who are faithful. He tells them, we see in the scripture, we see in the passage, they'll be clothed in white. And, and to be clothed in white in scripture, it does have many different meanings. To be clothed in white means to be set apart. You're sanctified from the rest of the world. You're set apart cleansed from sin. You have been, we're going to talk about that in a second, but you've been washed. Well, that's your next blank down there below that. But cleansed from sin and made morally and spiritually pure. When you get saved, it's just a powerful things happens in you, in us. When we get saved, there is an instant cleansing, washing. That's the next thing there. It symbolizes the purity that we have been washed in Christ's blood. So this, this cleansing takes effect in our life. And then we stand justified before God. Not because what we have done, but because of what Jesus paid for us. So a good way to remember being justified before God is that, is that if, as if I had justified, never sinned. Justified. Justified never sin. Does that make sense? And so, but then there's this continual work of sanctification taking place in our life. And so, you know, God, we're, we're saved. We stand right before the Lord. But then we got to mature and we got to grow. And so God works in our life. And it says that those that go through this process, they're going to be clothed in white. And then it says the second thing. Christ will never erase their names from the book of life. But there's a qualifier here. And the qualifier is this, is that those that have been set apart, those who have been cleansed, and those who are pure, who've been washed in the blood of Jesus, their names cannot be removed from the Lamb's book of life. And number three says this, I'll announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. I mean, I, I, was, I really have thought a lot these last few weeks on when Jesus says that. I mean... So, you know, we talk about, you know, in a lot of memorial service, funeral service, you know, you'll hear they've gone to the earthly reward. They've heard what we've always longed to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, I mean, that's powerful. But part of what's going to happen is whenever we enter into eternity, I mean, think about this. Father, Shana's finally here. You've got to meet her. I mean, not that he doesn't know us or her, but I mean, can you imagine walking into a throne room? I mean, I don't know what it's going to be like, but maybe in my, in my mind, I'm like, there, you know, whenever a king walks in the room and there's trumpet blasts and, you know, somebody announces, you know, at least I think on Princess Diaries, they announce her when they come down. Or I don't know why that just popped in my head, but it did. Here's old, what's her name? Whatever her name is. Princess Diaries lady. And so... Mia, there we go. So, you know, here's, I mean, think about that for a moment. You're going to walk into that throne or that place. 
and you're going to be celebrated. They're going to, they're going to know your name. They're going to say, you did it. You separated. You were washed. You were pure. Father, I want you to know, Cor here comes Corbin. He made, well done, good and faithful. Ah, oh, that just makes me long for heaven this little bit. The book of life is talking about a heavenly registry of those who have accepted salvation. But I want you to notice I said something, and I, I want to be careful what I say here. Because many of us in the room, you may be familiar with, it's, the official term is the security of the believer. Where is the security of the believer? And there are different fellowships, different churches, different organizations, they teach different things. But I want to tell you, as we go through this, there's a qualifier of whose names is in that book. Those who were washed, set apart, were faithful to the end. Does it, you know, the Bible says, you know, if, you know, you, uh, don't grow weary in doing well, but in due season you'll reap a harvest. The Bible says all, I mean, all through the New Testament, stay faithful to the end and you'll be saved. It didn't say stay perfect till the end. It says be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful to the Lord in your devotion. Your name is in the book. But listen to me. The Bible also tells us that if we repeatedly disregard the teachings of Scripture, that if we continually resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to tell you what I believe is that we can give up our salvation. I didn't say we lose our salvation. I know that's another terminology for it. But we give it up. See, the Bible says, matter of fact, and, and a lot of people use this as part of their defense that you can live life however you want to live it and still be saved, that nobody will be plucked out of his hand. And you're right. If you're living godly and you're living pure and you're living for the Lord and you're living faithful, nobody can take you out of the hand of God. But if you systematically live in rebellion towards the Lord, I'm going to tell you, you can remove yourself from the equation. I just want to give you some scriptures just really quick. Luke chapter 8, verse 13. This is the parable of the sower. And it says, Luke 8, 13, And the one on the rock, are though, remember there's, you know, there was, you know, uh, I prayed every week that there was good soil, and you know, there was rocky soil, there was thorny, there was the birds that came in. But listen to 8, 13. And the ones on the rock are those who they hear the word and what? Receive it. That's important to hear. They hear the word and they receive it. They took the word of God in with joy. But these have no roots. They, what does it say? They what? They, they what? They believe for a while and then in time of testing fall away. They fell away. They made that choice. Why? Because their faith got tested and they fell away. Another one's Hebrews. I'm not going to get into that one right now. But 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For if they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I mean, that, that's pretty... Is that descriptive to you of salvation? You've been transferred from one kingdom out of the kingdom of darkness into another, right? 
after they have escaped the defilement of the world, so they had a life change. They, they came out of that defilement through the knowledge of Jesus, so there was an encounter with them with the Lord. And then it says, and they are again, again, entangled and overcome by where they were before is what it's talking about. The last state has become worse for them than the first. And I, I could go on and share many other ones, but First Peter 2.20, I want to read in the New Living Translation. And when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. It would be better if they had never known the way of righteousness than to know it and reject the command that they were given to live a holy life. And I, you know, when I, when I was growing up, matter of fact, I, I heard people. I remember one time, a godly lady that I knew, she had really gotten a knockdown drag out with her son. And just in passing, she was, I mean, she was mad and angry, and, and probably rightfully so. And she kind of, she walked by us and she said, y'all need to pray for me because something happens to me before I get home, I'm probably not making heaven. And there was some of us that have grown under that weight of that if you just do one thing wrong, God's ready to strike you. That is not God. I'm going to tell you, to me, that makes salvation weak. If I may say it that way. But do not be deceived. Do not be mistaken. It is important for us to live in devotion to the Lord and be surrendered in every area of our life. Every area. Would you stand with me this morning? Thank you for joining us for our podcast. Again, if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find us online at odessafirst.com or on any social media platform. I hope that you are encouraged through today's message and that you'll join us again.